France Boas is commonly called the father of American anthropology. He's probably best known for his concept of cultural relativism, the notion that cultures must be examined based on their own context and merits, not judged by the customs and codes of other cultures. In his 1894 speech, Human Faculty as Determined by Race, Boaz espoused the foundational ideas that would lead to the modern view of race as a cultural construction. He argued against racial ranking and also that racial differences were small and historically contingent. This was the first crack in the essentialist concept of race, the notion that race was a natural or biological phenomenon. Boaz would go on to combat racism throughout his life. Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Joe, and this is Speaking of Race. Today, we're speaking with Herb Lewis, who is a professor emeritus in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin. Herb's a cultural anthropologist whose career has involved a lot of work in Ethiopia, Israel, and also the U.S., and among his many accomplishments is a long-term interest in the history of anthropology, especially the work of Franz Boas. He's the author of a book titled In Defense of Anthropology, An Investigation of the Critique of Anthropology, which came out in 2014. And that book talks quite a bit about Franz Boas. We've asked Herb to talk with us today about Boas and his work against racism, since that's something that's come up on the podcast several times. So welcome, Herb. Well, thanks very much. Good to be here, Joe and Jim. Thanks. I will kick it off with a sort of general question. As I mentioned in your intro just now, we've we've brought Boaz up a couple of times in our episodes, but perhaps you could start us off by giving us an idea of his early background and what led him towards work on race and racism. Yeah, gladly. Actually, in a way, you might say that Hans Boaz was pre-adapted to the anti-racist view that he took and he lived with and pushed all of his life. The Franz Boas was from a middle-class German-Jewish family. He was born in 1858, and that was just 10 years after the failed liberal revolutions of 1848. His family was imbued both with the values of the Enlightenment and with these 1848 revolutionary notions of the belief in reason and the capability of all men, and I in those days it was men, to be educated and to develop themselves. And they believed in equality. This was one of the slogans of the 1848ers. And their heroes were Goethe and Schiller and Beethoven, romantic ideas of humanity, the, the words of Schiller that Beethoven made even more famous through his Ninth Symphony, Alle Menschen werden Brüder, all men shall become brothers. This was vital importance to them. And so this was really his background. He was brought up with these strong feelings. And then after he got his doctorate in psychophysics, which was not anthropology at all, in 1883, when he spent a year in among the Inuit, and these notions were reinforced by his experience. And probably his preconceptions made it easier for him. But let me just read this, if I may. He was away for a year, and he was secretly engaged to a sweetheart, but he missed her terribly. And uh, he wrote a diary, which was really in the form of a letter to her, 
which he couldn't mail because no ships were going out. So, but fortunately, the family maintained it, he maintained it, and we have it. So on December 23rd, he wrote to his sweetheart, now I'm again sitting in Ochaitung's igloo and taking part in great festivity. Ochaitung has caught two seals today, and every man in the settlement is to receive a piece. Isn't it a beautiful custom among these, quote, savages, and he uses quotes around savages, Ilden, that they bear all deprivations in common and also are at their happiest best, eating and drinking when someone has come back with booty from the hunt. I often ask myself what advantages our, quote, good society possesses over that of the, quote, savages, and I find the more I see of their customs that we have no right to look down upon them combines a number of themes for, for Boaz. One thing, the search for truth, serving humanity, which he set out to do because this was part of his upbringing and his belief in what he should do, and a belief that there is a scientific truth, but also the relativism that we will hear about later. Oh, yeah. The relativity of culture and the appreciation uh, for other people and their ways and the recognition of their limitations, just as within his own society, there were limitations. I teach that as sort of the encapsulation of the idea of cultural relativism that he's so well known for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there's more too. Then he comes back from Baffinland. He really hasn't studied anthropology. And he goes to Berlin. And there he is attached to uh, the Museum of Anthropology in Berlin. And he becomes familiar with Rudolf Virchow, who was a great liberal statesman, pathologist, scientist, father of archaeology and so on, who was a very liberal person as well and had various lessons to teach him, including suspicion of the importance of the skull as a marker of people. This he got from Virchow in a way. And there was another person who had died, an anthropologist who had died, Theodor Weitz, W-A-I-T-Z, who was also a liberal and who had written a four-volume work. And if you look at the first volume, which has been translated into English, it's amazingly parallel to some of the things that Boaz was writing in his very first major article, Human Faculty as Determined by Race, from 1894. And Weitz had really said many of the same things. So there was a tendency for this liberal early anthropology, proto-anthropology in Germany, before they turned quite conservative and indeed eventually fascist. But this was a great moment in German uh, intellectual history, and Boaz participated in that as well. Wow, Mm -hmm. yeah. So he uh, had this reinforcement for these sorts of ideas. In particular, I'm thinking of Weitz, said some of the same things that Boaz will repeat in uh, the 1894 article and in his most important book of 1911, The Mind of Primitive Man. And one of the things about Weitz is that Weitz was critical about well, people you've talked about, I know, not and Glidden, and <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. their sort of their outright racism, and recognizing and explicitly writing that this is very good for their slave masters, their their slaveholders, and but it's not for truth. So he had this in his background as well. 
Darwin, I know Darwin borrows from Weitz in his uh, Descent of Man, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, he was an important figure that yeah. really does not get the credit he should, and I imagine soon people will start rediscovering Weitz. When Boaz came back, well, he, he left the museum in Berlin in 1886, came to New York, with the intention of getting married and immigrating. His wife, Marie, was actually an American citizen and lived in New York. Her father had been an outstanding physician. He had been inspector of hospitals for Lincoln during the Civil War, and he was one more of these 1848ers. He was a a German immigrant. The first job that Franz Boas got was as an editor on the journal Science, which I think is rather remarkable that this newcomer to the country, whose English was not yet perfect, had been made an editor on this new and important journal of science. And in 1887, giving an indication of what might be coming, he wrote a piece called Poetry and Music of Some North American Tribes. Now, at that time, this is the height of uh, Victorian evolutionary writing, it was said that primitives were so dumb, they were so backward, that their aesthetic sense was also so backward. The great John Lubbock, who was one of the major evolutionary writers, along with E.B. Tyler, uh, wrote quite a bit about their lack of appreciation of music or art or anything. Their, their senses were simply not developed sufficiently. In this article, a very short piece, he gives a few examples of Aboriginal poetry, which show, quote, that the mind of the native enjoys as well the beauties of nature as we do, that, the, that he expresses his grief in mournful songs and appreciates humorous conceptions. And then he says, there's no people, there's no tribe that hasn't some kind of poetry and music. Not long after, he wrote another article about what he called the half-blood Indian. He had done ethnographic fieldwork before coming to New York, between Berlin and coming to New York, on the island of Vancouver with a group known as the Quackoodle and with other British Columbia First Nations, Indian peoples, and studied the characteristics of the children who had an an Indian and a Euro-Canadian parent. And his findings were that, surprisingly, what you, against ideas, against miscegenation, that in fact, the half-blood Indians were in many ways physically better And although they had problems socially with both social groups, nevertheless, physically, they were, in fact, taller, the women were more fertile, and so on. So this was, again, an indication that uh, something different was going on here. And so these are a couple of his early works. And that, you know, sort of, I would say to modern ears, perhaps, this idea of sort of like miscegenation and you know, whether being quote unquote half bred from two different racial groups, it all sounds really kind of racist to modern ears. But I think listeners should remember that at that point, there was a lot of work going on suggesting that miscegenation was going to lead to these substandard humans who were going to, you know, sort of be the downfall of all humanity. And so Boaz was actually, he was trying to sort of disprove that point. Well, uh, absolutely. First of all, you know, I mean, this is the period of major development of Jim Crow in the last decades of the 19th century and going into the 20th century. And many of the states 
had laws against intermarriage, against marriage across racial lines. So Boaz was very aware of this. And then, as you point out, it becomes particularly important later on, and we may want to talk about the era of eugenics and of the nativist movement against even the coming of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe in the writings of one infamous fellow were considered inferior breeds. And <laughs> miscegenation, the intermarriage was going to destroy the Nordic people, the fine people of far north. So that, yes, this was extremely radical mm-hmm. for its time and in some cases even today. Yeah, This is a really interesting topic, and we've broached the, the issue of eugenics, but we haven't really you know, pulled it apart like we need to do in this uh, podcast at some point. But Someday. Yeah, we will. We'll get there. Uh, there are a whole series of things that Boaz played an important role in fighting against eugenics and against immigration restriction, particularly early in the 20th century, but even, as you point out, even earlier than that. So what do you think our listeners need to know about Boaz's work against this pervasive evil of the early part of the 20th century? The move for immigration restriction, in the first place, there had already been the restriction of immigration from Asia, especially from China, long before. But then we have this nativist movement, nativist in the sense of native white European, considering that they were at the top of the civilizational heap, saying we have had enough of these lesser breeds. And I think the term lesser breeds was actually used, who are coming in from Italy and from Poland and from Russia and from Slovakia, the Italians, the Jews, the Poles, and so on. And they can only weaken the great race. As a matter of fact, the famous Madison Grant, I've already alluded to, who was an important figure in New York. He was a friend of Theodore Roosevelt. He was much important work for the New York Zoological Garden and the American Museum of Natural History, for which for quite a while Boaz had been connected to. But he wrote this book called The Passing of the Great Race, in which he argues that, well, as Boaz puts it, his book is practically a modern edition of de Gobineau and a reflex of the opinions of Chamberlain, who was another racist writer. It's a dithyrambic praise of the blonde, blue-eyed white and of his achievements, a Cassandric prophecy of all the ills that will befall us on account of the increase of dark-eyed types. If these dark-eyed people come here, then the great blood of these great Nordics, these great Northerners, would be diluted, and it would be the end of American civilization about 100 years before we worry about the end of American civilization now. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, we'll let that uh, pass. Um, so the idea was, first of all, to exclude immigration from any but, well, wait, that almost sounds familiar, but any but the most favored <laughs> Western and Northern European nations. But secondly, to prevent miscegenation, but also to prevent the breeding of people who might be feeble-minded, who might be poor, who might spread diseases, and also would just generally weaken the race. There was a commission, U.S. Commission on Immigration, 
knowing of Boaz's work, and since he was the most famous scientist of this sort, asked him if he could contribute to an understanding of this problem. And he was delighted to, to help out. And he said, good, give me the money and we will study the heck out of immigrants and their children and we'll see just what these people are made of. And he started out, I guess it was about 35,000 Jewish subjects, but then got Italian and Polish and others, got quite a bit of money for his time from the government to do this study. And what he discovered was that upon coming into this new country, into a more favored environment from the rather poor conditions that many of these immigrants had come from, poor parts of Italy and Poland and so on, that indeed this next generation was healthier, they were taller, but above all, amazingly enough, the shape of their heads, the skulls, had changed enough significantly so that instead of being round-headed the way they were supposed to be, they were actually getting longer-headed. But there were other changes involved. But the point that he was making was, first of all, ah, it looks like the shape of the skull is not the marker of, of permanently of race, the way Virchow had already told him. But secondly, that environment itself plays a major role and that it looks as though these new people coming in are going to rapidly assimilate and become just like other Americans and to contribute just as well as other Americans had. And he actually, this he, he reviewed it for the nation and it was a devastating review, but he reviewed it in the American Anthropologist, The Passing of the Great Race, this book, of which a second edition appeared half a year after the publication of the first, is hardly a subject for a review in a scientific journal. It is the attempt to justify a prejudice, not with thoroughness of a Gobineau or the brilliancy of a Chamberlain, but by a superficial skimming over of a number of commonplace observations that are given the proper twist to suit the author's fancies. However, it was a very popular book in its time. Yeah, we've talked about, I guess it was back in our Race and Intelligence episode as well, right, Jim? Or series of episodes, we talked yeah. a bit about the significance of that immigrant study. Can you imagine sitting around in that commission? I mean, he was the only non-eugenicist on that commission. How could they nominate him without knowing that? That's I don't understand. Well, by that time, he was a pretty... He was pretty well-known and well-respected, right? Uh, yes, he, he really yeah. was. By that time, even by 1894, when he did that famous talk, he was at that time the president of Section H of the AAAS, that is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And H was the, I guess still is, the designation for the anthropology section. And right. he, uh, having been in the country only eight years was already the president of that. Yeah. And he was already by that time a understood, recognized as a major scientist. I get the feeling in a lot of the things that I read about Boaz, and again, I read him primarily in the context of understanding what he said and what he contributed to the race debate. I get the feeling that many people are downplaying his involvement with W.E.B. Du Bois. I know that you've done some work in this area, and, and could you tell us more about 
his involvement with with them. It's it's interesting. This this paper in 1894, as I say, was the forerunner of uh, his book, The Mind of Primitive Man. Basically, the argument was that race does not determine performance, intelligence. That was the fundamental point. Yeah, It was much more complicated. He came at it from a series of points of view. But this came to the notice of, if I can use the term Negro, because that was the term at the time, Negro intellectuals, of whom W.E.B. Du Bois was one of the two leaders, along with Mm -hmm. Booker T. Washington. So, Du Bois was teaching at Atlanta University in Atlanta, and he contacted Boaz and he asked him whether it would be possible to get some grants to do research on the situation of the Negro. And Boaz immediately started applying to the Carnegie Foundation and so on for funds of that sort, which didn't work out. Carnegie didn't feel like funding it. However, having been in contact, Du Bois then invited Boaz to talk at the 1906 commencement at Atlanta University, which was a a black institution, and most of its teachers were black, not all of them. And Boaz agreed. He accepted. It was also connected to a, a conference at the time. What Boaz did in his talk, it's called here the Outlook for the American Negro, said the situation is pretty bad now. It's pretty bleak. Now, this is 1906. There is Jim Crow, a huge situation of poverty, the uh, social, political, economic situation of the American Negro is bad indeed. He goes and talks about this at first, but then he says... But don't let them tell you that this is something that's characteristic and necessary for the race, because you have a great heritage. You have come from Africa. The evidence of African ethnology is such that it should inspire you with the hope of leading your race from achievement to achievement. Shall I remind you of the power of military organization exhibited by the Zulu? whose kings and whose armies swept southeastern Africa? Shall I remind you of the local chiefs who, by dint of diplomacy, bravery, and wisdom, unified the scattered tribes of wide areas into flourishing kingdoms, of the intricate form of government necessary for holding together the heterogeneous tribes? And he spoke of of the grass mats with their beautiful patterns. Even more worthy of our admiration is the work of the blacksmith, who manufactures symmetrical lance heads almost a yard long, and so on and so on. Mm. If, therefore, it is claimed that your race is doomed to economic inferiority, you may confidently look to the home of your ancestors and say that you have set out to recover for the colored people the strength that was their own before they set foot on the shores of this continent. To those who stoutly maintain a material inferiority of the Negro race and who would dampen your ardor by their claims, you may confidently reply that the burden of proof lies with them, that the past history of your race does not sustain their statements, but rather gives you encouragement. Du Bois writes later, Franz Boas came to Atlanta University where I was teaching history in 1906 and said to the graduating class, you need not be ashamed of your African past. And then he recounted the history of black kingdoms south of the Sahara for a thousand years. I was too astonished to speak. All this I had never heard. And I came then and afterwards 
to realize how the silence and neglect of science can let truth utterly disappear or even be unconsciously distorted. This would lead Du Bois to a long career of involvement with Africa, where eventually, more or less in exile, he died. The power of this, it did not go unnoticed by others as well. This was something so new and so important. And to make light of this, to make light of Boaz and his contributions is, it's intellectually dishonest as well as uh, somewhat scandalous. I'm working on another Boazian project. And as so many people do, I'm going through his correspondence. And what is revealed in the correspondence is up till the day he died, he was constantly concerned with the problem of race and equality. And he would let nothing go. A high school teacher, biology teacher, complained that the textbook that they had in the New York schools had talked about the difference in the blood of Negroes and whites. He immediately contacted the geneticist Elsie Dunn, who was at Columbia, and a yes. colleague and friend, who was horrified by this. He then contacted the NAACP. He contacted the head of the Board of Education. And this was about 1941 when he is very ill and near the end of his days, but he would not let anything go. He participated in this battle to bring equality, not only in race, but in all things, just as he was saying when he was back in the igloo of Ochaitum in Baffinland. Well, thank you so much, Herb, for being with us. It was really an honor to talk to you. Well, it was actually my honor. I'm so glad that you contacted me and I had this opportunity to do this. Well, you did a really, I think, a really fantastic job of giving us a sense of how, in some ways, ahead of his time, in many ways, ahead of his time, Franz Boas really was. And I guess what strikes me the most about our conversation is how the good fight that he was fighting back then is one that we are, or people are still fighting today. Uh, unfortunately and remarkably enough, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being here. I am Joe, the cultural anthropologist. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist, and you have been listening to Speaking of Race. Be sure to check out our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and our Instagram. See you next time. I'm, I'm, I'm Herb, the token cultural anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess Joe. <laughs>